Now, what would be the odds that that was happening again, that that wasn't a new report? Was that a new report or an old report? That's what I'm asking. Is it a new report or an old report? Is that a new report? Well, we don't know. When a seasoned sports fan teams up with a millennial, opinions may vary, but the debates assuredly won't disappoint. Check your sources. It's New Report, Old Report. Here's your hosts, John Lund and Al Renato. Well, Al, another exciting week in athletics. The national champion has been crowned in the Kansas Jayhawks. Major League Baseball is here. And the Los Angeles Lakers are officially dead. But we start in college basketball quickly with the Kansas Jayhawks winning their fourth national championship, taking down the North Carolina Tar Heels 72-69. The under for anybody interested seemed like the whole country was on the over. But when some scoring droughts happened in the first half and also in the second half, that took care of that. As Kansas falls behind by 15 points heading into the second half, which would have been a record-breaking comeback to be able to win that game. No other team had come from behind from more than 10 to win a national championship game in tournament history. Kansas says nay-nay, goes on an incredible run to start the second half, led by defense fast break points, all stuff they weren't doing in the first half. You blink, they're right in the game, and North Carolina slowly but surely was unable to recover. Had a chance at the end to tie down three, four seconds to go after Kansas inexplicably stepped out of bounds. Chris Webber-esque stupidity by Dwan Harris, but the inbounds play that they drew up for one Brady Maddock in the opposite corner, he falls down. Looks like he got sniped by somebody in the crowd galloping along like a maimed horse that needs to be put down behind the track. <laughs> he doesn't get the basketball. It goes to Caleb Love who couldn't shoot the basket in an ocean and he missed and Kansas is your national champion. A pretty thrilling game, especially for the comeback aspect of it. Something that was historic. One could argue that North Carolina blew it. One could argue that Kansas won it. I didn't necessarily think the game was out of reach. I know 15 was the record, but it was still a whole second half worth to play, and we've seen teams come back before. We saw it help happen with Villanova against Kansas in the Final Four. Huge leads with enough time are never safe, so I never felt like North Carolina was completely in control, and whatever it was, they end up having another large lead get blown as they did in Baylor in the second round. Kansas able to fend them off. An exciting time for the Jayhawks. Not a bad time to be a Carolina fan either. Plenty of optimism to be had there with Hubert Davis as a first-year head coach, but I thought to cap off this NCAA tournament, the national championship game didn't disappoint. It was exciting enough, and a number one seed won. A great story won, and North Carolina showed a valiant effort. It's not like they were a fluke getting to that point, so I thought we lucked out pretty well with what ended up happening in the national championship game. Well, hello, Big John. Greetings to all our fans and listeners. And I think it was tremendous. And that's not just because I picked Kansas to win the tournament. Uh, That's not just because last week on this program, I picked Kansas and Carolina in the finals and Kansas to win it all. I think it was a tremendous tournament. I think it was great for college basketball. I think it was a shot in the arm for uh, three or four different reasons. Number one, 
it was a great tournament. No, we didn't have a ton of buzzer beaters. Yeah, but we had competitive games. We had compelling games. We had only one number one seed make it to the final four, but three number two seeds. We had St. Peter's, the Cinderella story, make it all the way to the Elite Eight, upsetting Kentucky, upsetting Purdue. We had Gonzaga go down. And we had full buildings. 2020, no tournament. The year of the asterisk. Last year, the tournament in front of no fans. This year, it's back, full throttle, and we had competitive games in all the regionals. We had fun games. We had interesting games. We had some incredibly poorly officiated games, i.e. Gonzaga, Arkansas. However, we survived that and got to a terrific Final Four, a magic carpet ride for your team, and the never can say goodbye. Oh, I guess we can say goodbye now. Coach K, uh, coaching in what was seemingly forever his last season, which we didn't think would end and finally did. And that nonstop story, but you know, it's not about me. And an epic, epic semifinal between Carolina and Duke in their first ever meeting in the postseason NCAA tournament. And on top of everything else, it's in the final four. And they give us a classic, a great, exhilarating event. An event, a spectacle. Was it the greatest game of all time? No. Was it as good as Gonzaga UCLA in the Final Four last year? Maybe not, which was a tremendous overtime game. Shot for shot for shot for shot. But this was compelling. It was these two blue blood programs, these arch rivals in the same state, in the same conference, right down the road, and somehow, some way, meeting again just a few weeks later after Carolina stuns Duke in the anybody and everybody all come aboard, including Jerry Seinfeld. Anybody who's ever you know watched a Duke game is invited. Anybody who's ever rooted for Duke, if you can fit your fanny into the building, anybody who's ever played a game for Duke, sit over there in your white sweater for a whiteout and watch Coach K lose his last game at Cameron Indoor. Right? Two arch-rival North Carolina, two first-year coach Hubert Davis, and then in the postgame, hang his team on to dry. Strike one. Then we get them again. We get them again in the NCAA semifinals before a national audience, and they go back and forth nonstop in what looks like early on is going to be a Duke run, and they take control with a seven-point lead, and then boom, 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 Carolina strikes right back. Uh, a couple of big possessions. Uh, early in the first half, Carolina down six, about to go down eight. But Love gets uh, you know, a couple of buckets, a huge bucket by Davis. Your little guy Roach, a bucket at the end of uh, the first half with an old-fashioned three-pointer and one, and up three. Then into the second half we go. And Duke goes up by seven. It looks like now Duke is going to take control. And then, boom, Carolina goes on another run. A 13-0 run, 11 of which came before you blinked. And Carolina's up six. It looks like they're in trouble. Boom, Duke comes right back. And then we went back, forth, back, forth, back, forth, threes, threes, twos, threes. And then Carolina takes the lead. Duke, uncharacteristically, their big guy after your superstar player missed a couple free throws down the stretch in some two-shot situations. Williams goes to the line with two free throws down. One, he misses them both. Love hits a three to put them up four. That's pretty much all she wrote. Back and forth with threes, which was terrific. Uh, you know, Manic and Wendemore off the miss. 
kick it back out, one to one at the top of the key, another three. You know me, don't give up a three. After you made a three, however, that was off a missed three, all right, uh, by Keel, so, which was a wide-open look, which I thought he was going to make, because he played great. So now you've got an absolute classic game that did not disappoint in any way, shape, or form, and really gave you even more than you could have hoped for on an absolute spectacle on a Saturday night, second game, after Kansas makes quick work of Villanova, too big, too strong, too good, no contest, up 19 early, I believe. Uh, Villanova eventually cuts it to six, but just too much Kansas. Too much inside, too much outside, too much size, too much experience, uh, too much quality athleticism. And a Kansas team that has been playing terrific throughout this tournament, that had its one scare and got through it uh, against Providence. And now, playing great, played great against Villanova after a shoddy first half against Miami, who they then obliterated in the Elite Eight. That continued on throughout the Villanova game. And there they are, finals, two more Blue Bloods, Kansas and Carolina. And we go at it again. Kansas comes out hot, then can't put the ball in the ocean. Carolina's looking great. Kansas looks like they're panicking. They're missing layups. Love and Davis are doing it again. Manic is knocking down threes. And playing well, and it's a 15-point game at the half. And you're like, whoa, <laughs> Hubert Davis. Uh, I mean, just you know, like I said last week, get the W and retire. I'm never coaching again. You know, you never have to buy another meal in the state of North Carolina if you live to be a thousand. Beat Coach K twice and win the national title in your first year. Uh, what, what can I do next? What can I do for encore? And then you know, Kansas came out in the second half the same way they did when the game started. They turned it up defensively. They put a lot of pressure on the Carolina guards who played virtually the entire game. They extended their defense. They caused some turnovers. They caused some quick shots. They ran their break. They finished, and that 15-point lead was gone within the span of six or seven minutes. And then Kansas went up by six. Carolina came back. But the guys who made the shots, for the most part, to beat Duke, which Love and Davis, Davis in the first half, Love in the second, and like I said before, against Duke, Carolina, the best two players in the game. Davis was the best player on the court in the first half. Love was the best player on the court in the second half. That's tough to beat. Against Kansas, they shot him in against Carolina, or against Duke, they shot him out against Kansas. They could not make the same shots. Now, those shots had a lot of pressure. Those shots were from tired players. Those shots were, you know, with all the pressure on for a championship. And you start missing some, it's a little harder to make them. Legs get a little tired. They played a lot of basketball. Kansas had a little more depth. Uh, Bill Self masterfully made sure his guys were rested. He got each of his players a blow during that run to tie it. So we talk about so many times, when you finish that run, when you come back, have you got anything left to finish? And Kansas did. They were able to finish the job because he got McNamara some forced rest because of foul trouble, but they have light put to spell him. He got Abaji some rest. He got Harris some rest. Uh, the one guy who didn't rest was Braun, who I love, who's in the middle of everything, who was really a huge part of that early run in the second half with uh, defensive turnovers, rebounds, and running on the break and finishing. And again, it was a hotly competitive Monday night. It was a terrific game. It came down to the last couple possessions. But the team that was the best team in this tournament from beginning to end, the most well-rounded team, the most versatile team, was Kansas. And it proved to be the best team 
and they're the national champs for all the right reasons. It was a tale of Kansas's season in that national championship game where you see what has happened to them at times this season in the first half. Nothing's working. They're missing easy shots, layups. They can't guard anybody on defense. Everybody's going down for the other team. And then they flip some switch, and they did so in the second half. Bill Self told them at halftime, what would you rather right now, being down 15 with a second half to play or being down nine with two minutes to go, referring to when they won in 2008? Uh, I, I really think if you watch the second half closely, watch the game again, I, I really think they fell asleep. I don't want to say fell asleep, but the, the pressure defense they came out with against Villanova and the pressure defense they came out with against North Carolina that got them off to the early start, it, it seemed like they kind of fell back in that first half. And then they came out the second half and they put forth that same kind of pressure defense where they put pressure on the ball full court. There was always somebody, not nonstop in Davis's face, 94 feet, but you know, when he brought the ball up, Harris was in the backcourt with him. There was no time to relax. There was no time for the Carolina guards to rest on offense. They were constantly under pressure where they had to think about the defender being there, whether it was in the backcourt, whether it was extended pressure just coming across half court. And if you watch Tabaji, he didn't have a great offensive game. He didn't get a lot of shots. But his defense, especially in the second half, was tremendous. He was nonstop, relentless, cutting off passing lanes, cutting off driving lanes, moving his feet. And you know, I, I thought he was a, a real unsung defensive hero of that game. He got most outstanding player. I thought it should have been McNamara for sure. You know, McNamara was huge against Villanova. Uh, he was wonderful down the stretch of this game with the two huge buckets in the post against Maddox. Uh, the miss, the offensive rebound, the jump hook, and then the jump hook the next time on the post up. You know, man's man. And I thought he should have gotten the most outstanding player. But the point is their defense really triggered the comeback in the second half. And I think it put a lot of pressure on the Duke guards. I think it, or, excuse me, the Carolina guards. And I really think they wore down throughout that game. And I think it affected the way they ran their offense. And I think it affected their shots as well. And, you know, ironically off of a huge advantage in the first half, I would love some analytical guy, uh, some geek, some stat head to tell me if a team has ever won the national title in the finals where they got out rebounded by 20. Because at the right. end of the day, Duke, I keep saying Duke, I'm sorry. Uh, maybe it's just a, a little twist of the knife. Uh, Carolina out-rebounded Kansas 55 to 35. Obviously, it was led by Baycott, who was everywhere on the glass. Man, the young man's a beast. He's huge. He's got a nose for the ball. Uh, he missed a lot of shots uh, on his post-ups, but they had so many more attempts from the field that they shot so poorly from everywhere, from three, from in close. Uh, they made the free throws, but they missed a lot of shots from everywhere, and they out-rebounded Kansas 55-35 to 35 and still lost the game. To me, that is absolutely stunning. I can't believe a team got out-rebounded by that many and still won the game and still looked like the better team. A lot of those rebounds were missed threes, some deflections. There were a couple of possessions where they got three and four shots on 50-50 balls. But still, 20 and you lose the game. I find that absolutely stunning. And that was the funny thing at the end of the game with Kansas 
having the opportunity to follow up three, maybe the thought process from Bill Self is, why am I going to follow and put them at the free throw line? They make the first, they're down two, they're going to miss the second. We can't out-rebound them to save our lives. They're obviously going to get the board, put it back up and score and tie the game. Now, granted, at the time, Armando Baycott was out after he rolled his ankle on a phantom loose floorboard, and he wasn't in the game to maybe get that rebound. It would have to be Played his heart McCormick. He was unbelievable. Played his heart And it's funny, in college, like you think, if you're tall, you're going to get a double-double each game. If you're tall enough, it's not much to ask against inferior competition sometimes. Ten points, ten boards. How hard can it be? Just put your arms up, you know? Grab a board. Throw it back up there. Make it. How hard can it be to get ten and ten? And then you find out after Armando Baycott finishes this season, gets to his streak of double-doubles at the end of this game, he's tied for Tim Duncan for most all-time ever. No one's doing this. So regardless if you think it might be easy, there's some stuff in college basketball when they give the stats out and you take a step back and just think about them for a second. Like, wow, yeah, what he is doing is impressive because you watch him play in his games and you think, well, yeah, he's going to get you 15 and 10, 10 and 15, whatever that's going to be. That's just what he does. Other people are assuredly doing that in cross college basketball. Are they not? They are not. was what we come down to. It was an incredible run for him. Sad to see him, unfortunately, go in that crux of the game because really it kind of turned after that. David McCormick was like, now it's my time. He took the game over. He went at Brady Manick. He kept going into the post. He had two great moves to score and put Kansas and, ahead, and he should and have had Manick, MLP. Manick right played that. him well. Yeah, Manick, it's okay. You know, he, he couldn't do anything more. Strong. He's bigger and stronger than Manick, but Manick played him tough. He, he didn't let himself get totally overpowered. Those were tough shots. And they let them go in the post, you know, and I discussed this with, uh, with the mad dog. We had a nice conversation about it. We both agreed that you know, as critical as certainly I have been over my lifetime of officials at all levels in all sports, I thought this was a masterfully officiated final. They let them play. They let them go. There were fouls and you know, guys went to the line, but they let the big boys bang in the post they let some physicality go where guys where it didn't create an advantage. And you saw some good old fashioned physical post play guys banging each other inside. I mean, when McNamara got the ball with Baycott on his back, Baycott would just bam and bang him and they let it go. And it's okay. As long as they let it go on both sides. And then obviously guys pick up, you know, his ref would say the nickel dimers because they're always going to call the reaches. They're always going to call the stuff when they go over the back to get an advantage. It's funny, the big guys, they, they'll let you bang the hell out of them in the post. But, you know, when they reach, which can create an advantage, you're going to get that call against you. But I thought they called a very even-handed, fair game where it was physical and they let both teams play. They let both teams defend. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, poor Manic took that, that inadvertent shot, which somehow he got up from. Twice. And he played his heart out. <laughs> Twice. He got he, he, nailed in the face by McCormick. And he, I, you know, people are like, it's a basketball play. You, you kind of have a pretty good idea where the guys are at. To hit him once, okay. To hit him twice in the face, to make Manic, it look like a basketball play by McCormick was well played. We'll just put it that way. He, he knew where he was. Manic absolutely played his heart out. He did. Played his I, I thought he didn't even shoot him enough in the second half. He didn't I get no shots. I thought they should have gave him no more shots. shots. Now, you know, it's difficult. They know that they're going to him, but hey, get it to him, man. It doesn't matter if he's got a second, half a second, a quarter of a second. You give him anything, he's going to get and a Manic, shot up. Manic is going to play at the next level as a stretch Absolutely. Four Put him on the spurs, can, you know, just have him shoot, man. Because he can knock down the threes 
from the corner. He can knock down the threes from the top. And he's one of those big guys who doesn't put the ball down. He catches it and releases it. And that's, that's a heck of a talent. And it's a nice stroke. And he's good on the line. He's a good passer. He's got a chance to be a good pro. Reminds me a little bit of, of, of love. Not as good a rebounder as love, you know, in his days at UCLA, uh, you know, who was obviously you know, a, a double, double machine in his early days, you know, in his prime in the pros and has obviously become a terrific three point shooter for a big guy and can still rebound. Absolutely. But uh, Manic has got that, that kind of stroke with the, it's the quick catch and shoot. The ball doesn't come down. And he's fearless. He's fearless. He plays hard. And I, I was just, I was thrilled from a sports pan, fan's point of view, obviously with the competitiveness of Duke and Carolina. And, you know, it's rare when you get a game that has all this buildup and you have that kind of competitiveness on a Saturday night with the whole world watching when it comes down to those last few minutes when they're going back and forth, three for three for three for three. I, I thought it was fabulous. And then on to Monday night when you've got an incredibly competitive game with the comeback story, the North Carolina kind of fairy tale story, if you want to call it that. And it's Carolina, so it's tough to have that be a fairy tale. But they real, you know, they're an eight seed. They, you know, as we talked about before, they lost to Pittsburgh. <laughs> if we see more, and I know we, we, we don't want Pittsburgh any, any credit for having a Division One team, but you're destroyed by Pittsburgh and some terrible losses, considered by some a bubble team. And then, you know, like Kansas, as we talked about before, they were one of the best teams in this tournament. Yep. They played tremendous basketball, except for those last ten minutes of the second half against Baylor where they blew a 25 point lead. So they played fabulous basketball. They deserved to be there and they played second best of all the teams in the tournament, second best to Kansas and the team that was the best throughout one. But I, I thought it was two terrific nights, uh, which was great for college basketball. You saw some upperclassmen, you know, you saw some seniors, you saw some juniors on Kansas, uh, you know, obviously on Villanova, uh, of course, your, your Duke club has got all the one and dones, and the freshmen and sophomores are going straight to the draft to be replaced by the next wave. But, you know, you saw some familiar faces. You saw some guys that we, you become used to seeing, and I thought that was pretty cool, too. Let's take a quick break to pay the bills. He's Al Renato. I'm John Lund. We'll be right back with the new report, old report, here on Sports Radio America. We welcome you back. I'm John Lund. He's Al Renato, and this is the new report, old report. Most viewed game on cable in tournament history, Duke, North Carolina. No surprise there. It's interesting, too, for the two teams that got to the national championship. Both got blown out by Kentucky by close to 30 points, each of them. Long time ago for both, because Kentucky got wrecked in the first round by St. Peter's. I thought it was a fantastic national championship game, and it's funny for Kansas the narrative being around them that this isn't a Bill Self best team. It was just a great collection of guys that started playing together perfectly at the right time to make that six-game run that you need to in the NCAA tournament. We're now getting the comparisons of where does Ochai Abaji rank in Kansas lore? Is he one of the best players ever because of his accomplishments from this season? Bill Self has Danny Manning as number one, obviously led the... Of course, Igbaji has all these accolades from this season, but doesn't really have them for his previous three years. What I kind of find humorous, just as a Duke fan, to put a little elbow into the stomach of Kansas fans, is when talking about your best players of all time, number one on the list is Danny Manning, and then two is Ochai Baji. 
that's the best y'all got? <laughs> well, that, that's first of all, that's clearly not the case. Because it might be. I mean, I'm the, great, the greatest player in Kansas history. I mean, he was only there for a year, but it's of course Will Chamberlain. Well, I'll say so. since Danning Manning till now, obviously Wilt stands alone for everything he's done. From Danning Manning up until this point, Ochai's got a pretty good argument as being the most accomplished player for what ended up happening this year for well, everything he Paul, put together. And it's like, really? That's, Paul, that's all you got? Paul, Paul Pierce was a pretty accomplished player. Yeah, no uh, championship. I think I no, don't even no, think no, they got no. to the Elite Eight. If, if you got to win a championship, you know, I mean, obviously, you got to win a championship. It's a huge factor. So right. you know, all those other guys didn't win championships. There's you know, the list and, down and pretty course, good. And of, course, and of course, Danny Manning did. So, uh, and there was no super duper star on the Kansas team that beat Memphis. Right. Uh, you know, Mario Chalmers, uh, you know, goes on to a nice career with the Heat, but uh, this separates Bill Self now. And the other aspect of this that was glorious for me is, you know, one of our great friends and loyal listeners, John Birch, uh, who is from Kansas and is a KU grad and is a huge fan of the program and is an, even older than the old report. Uh, he went to school with Jojo Weiss, uh, the Kansas Olympian. Uh, and when he was at Kansas, they lost to Texas Western in 1966 when Texas Western went on to stun Kentucky with the first all-black starting five, that Kansas team that they beat in the Final Four was his Kansas team when JoJo White supposedly stepped out of bounds. And he said, all I could think of when Harris stepped out of bounds was JoJo White all over again. And for years, I have been telling our friend John Birch that I think Bill Self is a terrific coach, and he can't stand him. He sends me all the statistics about the underachieving Jayhawks. <laughs> and then, going into this tournament, as they went a little further, he analyzed and he sent me the whole package. Maybe it wasn't as bad as I thought. You know, because like everybody else, like Coach K, like Bob Knight, like Jim Beheim, you know, if you're in it enough, you're going to lose to a 15. You're going to lose in the second round. You're going to lose a game in the Elite Eight when you were the better team. You're going to lose in the Final Four. And only one championship, all those Big 12 titles, all those one, two, and three seeds, and only one championship. Well, now he is one of only three active coaches, Rick Pitino, and Jay Wright being the other two that has multiple national titles. Isn't that number wild? When they put it on the screen and you actually realize there's only three now active coaches with two national championships, that's it? Just Jim two? Bayheim still, Jim Bayheim still only has one. It's a crazy number. Years. And Little Caesar, you know, top of the war criminal list right there, Tom Izzo, Mr. March, only one national title. Of all those Final Four appearances, still only the one. 22 which years won, ago. Which, which, which they won in their backyard, remember, right. in Detroit. So... Uh, you know, Bill Self now has two, and I finally got the seal of approval from John Birch, who texted me that he will never ever again. He is done criticizing <laughs> Bill Self. I said, if nothing else, if nothing else, I made a believer out of him. So I happen to like Bill Self. I think he's a good guy. There are times when I've said I, I I'm confused. Okay, there are times when I've said you know they lost games they should have won. But some guys, maybe it's the smile, maybe it's the way he is in the post game where he never criticizes officials, he never uh, badmouths anybody. He always seems to take losses the same way he takes wins, 
with a good nature and a smile on his face. And, you know, we played great. Uh, we didn't play very well. We could have played better. But, you know, he said after Miami, in the second half, he was, that's as good as we can play. That's as good as we can play. You know, we were terrible in the first half, and we came out and we just played. You know, I like it when a guy says we played perfect basketball. I don't know if we're going to play that way again. You know, you can't – there are certain things you can do. You can you can have – you know, you can only have your best 30 minutes of basketball once. Okay, that doesn't happen more than once. And that was their best – best 20 minutes of basketball once, and that right. was their best 20 minutes. That Miami 20 minutes was perfect. And they continued it for pretty much 40 minutes against Villanova where they played incredibly well. And they fell asleep – for about 13 minutes against North Carolina. So it, they played very well. He was pretty cool about it. Um, he's not the braggadocious type. He's never an I told you so type. Uh, you know, he was happy for his players. They dedicated a lot of it to the 10 I know people are sick of hearing it, but the 2020 team, some of which those guys were still there. Ridiculous, but go. I get it. Um, you know, because the fact that they didn't get to play and they thought that they had a great chance to win the national title. But the point is, a lot of those guys are still there and they got their national title. To back up John Birch briefly, to have Bill Self, of all people, telling the world that they would have won the national championship in 2020 when he hadn't won one since 2008 and had much better teams. Like, it's just so easy to go into the national championship after winning five games and to win one without any problems. Of course we would have won in 2020. All the players, yeah, we feel like it was, it was taken from us. Well, who won the next year? Baylor. You think they didn't have the same team in 2020 and they could have went out there and win? You don't think there were other 60-plus teams that thought they could have did the same? The fucking shame on you people thinking it was going to be that simple to win the 2020 championship. It got taken away from us. Get lost. It got taken away from everybody. All of a sudden, Bill Self is some national champion. Put it in the books type of guy. 2008 was the last time. Now, all of a sudden, that streak was going to come to an end. Get lost with that. Anyway. (laughs) Shout bitter, out to Bill Self. <laughs> bitter, but such, such a stupid thing to uh, say. You know how fucking bitter. hard it is to win the national championship in college basketball? You think it was just going to be yours? You didn't even play the Big 12 tournament. We don't even know if you would have won that. Disgruntled. What a stupid thing to say to people. The nerve. All these Duke teams fan. had their seasons ripped from their grasp, and Kansas, of all people, is saying, we got ours taken away from us. What about everybody else? You losers. What a stupid thing to say. This has nothing to do with 2020. There's no redemption. You just won the national championship. Be happy about it and be quiet about do you it. Want, do you want to take some shots at Gonzaga before you finish? Yeah, you know who would have won in 2020? Gonzaga. You know how great they were of a team? They would have been a number one seed. The underdog Gonzaga Bulldogs. Well, how come they weren't penciled in to win it all? Not- so, yes, for Duke fans, it's going to be quite the painful couple years maybe a decade or so, we can't get away from this year fast enough and Duke can't win a national championship quick enough. Before we finish up and move on to the postmortem in the NBA, I have to ask you a quick question, just in, in terms of your opinion. When, in the finals, when Baycott got hurt again and Kansas had the five-on-four advantage and they came down and they didn't push it, and Baycott limped down the court, and when they got it to five on five, they blew the whistle. Did you think that Kansas almost didn't want to go five on four? Am I the only one that thought that? It, it, it almost looked like they 
we're like, uh, we don't want to do this. You know, and Raph's saying go for the jugular. And right. Obviously, you have to do that. Because they had the five, they had five on four. McCormick down low, boom, you know, attack. And if you double him, you, there's, there's only four guys. It almost looked like they they waited for him. Intentionally. Right. I thought that either decision was a preposterous one. Either the first one, as you said, where they saw him get hurt and they waited for him to get back because they didn't want to have an unfair advantage. Stupid. Two, if you're looking to use up some clock because you did have the lead and it was early in the shot clock, understandably so in normal times, but you have five on four, you can't possibly not notice that Armando Baycott is not in the picture. And if you're on the sidelines for Kansas, you can't possibly not be yelling, go, score, do something. The awareness to not see that you had five on four. Also, stupid. So I don't know what the reasoning was, either to hold it because you wanted to control clock. I get it. But in that circumstance, you've got the door open for you to try to take advantage of it. Do so. It's a national championship game. And two, if they're waiting for him to get down there, the poor kid is hobbling along. He can't do anything. They even asked him after the game, like, did you know what you wanted to accomplish there? He's like, I have no idea. I didn't know if I could follow somebody or I just knew I had to get down the court. He can't put any weight on his leg. Unbelievable by him to just get down there. Played his heart out. But if you're waiting for him to come down there, what the hell are you doing, man? Score! I I will go back to the old report for you. Uh, In 1977, this was my freshman year at Syracuse, Marquette was playing North Carolina in the finals on the Monday night. And I'm sure you've read about Phil, the legendary Phil Ford, who we called at that point in time the best point guard on the planet. He was a brilliant college player. And Al McGuire's Marquette team with you know, Bo Ellis and Jerome Whitehead and Butch Lee, BLT, Butch Lee time. And there was a possession where Phil Ford went flying out of bounds past the end line, under the basket, and disappeared into the crowd. And Marquette came down with the advantage. And you're not allowed as the official to stop the game, especially when the team's got the advantage because the other team's got the ball. And Al McGuire made the official stop the game. He would not allow the game to continue. He made them stop the game, even though his team had the ball, going in the front court with a five-on-four advantage because Phil Ford was still in the crowd when they were bringing the ball across front court towards the front court and Al McGuire made the official stop the game to make sure that he was okay. And he came out of the crowd and he was okay, fortunately. And they continued the game. I always remembered that because you know, Al McGuire city guy, New York city, digger, tough guy, gamer, go for the jugular. But I thought it was one of the greatest shows of sportsmanship and uh, concern for the health of in this case, the other team's player, best player, uh, that he would stop the national title game with so much on the line when his team had the advantage to make sure the other player on the other team was okay. I thought it was one of the coolest things I ever saw. They, of course, went on to win the game and the national title, and then he retired. And what I was very happy about the outcome of this game is that Kansas didn't score in that situation. They didn't score with that advantage. And I felt good about that. And I know that sounds silly. I know it sounds hokey, but I was really, and I'm, I'm a go for the jugular's foot on the throat guy. You got him down, kick him. Uh, 
But in that instance, I was I was cool that uh, that Kansas didn't for whatever reason that they didn't go for it and that they didn't score with that five and four advantage. I was glad the way that worked out that the game didn't get decided because you know they attacked in that situation and got a foul and free throws or a layup. By the way, uh, Kansas in the brackets, Kansas to win the whole shooting match in the MLB Network Adam Mendelson uh, pool of over 1,100, uh, a respectable 39th. Not awful. Our best finish ever. Let's take a quick break to pay the bills. He's Al Renato. I'm John Lund. We'll be right back with the new report, old report, here on Sports Radio America. We welcome you back. I'm John Lund. He's Al Renato, and this is the new report, old report. We move on. We put a cap on college basketball, sadly, for another 300-plus days. We have a brief amount of time and just enough time necessary to put a cap and to memorialize the Los Angeles Lakers, a team that we haven't spoken much about on this show throughout the NBA season because, frankly, there hasn't been a lot of things to say positively about said team, a team that now sits at 31-48, and 48, 31 and a half games behind the first-place Phoenix Suns. They have 63 wins, 17 losses, Al. 31 and a half for people that might have missed that. There are 10 potential playoff seeds. A couple playing games, of course, to make it into the NBA playoffs. 10 of 15. The Los Angeles Lakers, consisting of LeBron James, Anthony Davis, Russell Westbrook, and co., were unable to be one of the 10 best of 15 teams in the Western Conference with the likes of a team that has 20 wins, a team of 24 wins, a team of 27, and the Sacramento Kings on their heels at 29 and 51. We are very excited to put this season behind us. Never speak of it again. When we have spoke of the season, it's hard not to speak in terms of the worst evers, such as Russell Westbrook being one of the worst ever trades that the franchise has made and the decisions that encircled that ripping apart the team that won NBA championship a couple years back, albeit in the asterisk season, but a championship nonetheless, a team that was an injury away from beating the Phoenix Suns a year past. Let's go back to the drawing board, tear everything to shreds, throw whatever we can at the wall and see what sticks. And we ended with the 2021-2022 season that we can't wait to put behind us. So the floor is yours to get off all your anger or resentment or sadness as we head into the five stages of grief to thankfully put this season behind because they are officially eliminated before the season has even ended. Well, if you listen to His Highness, the Prince of Pontification, uh, the great windbag of ESPN, according to Stephen A. Smith, if not for Frank Vogel, the Lakers would be in the postseason. So it's Frank Vogel's fault because, you know, another coach could go out and defend. Another coach could guard other teams' backcourts. Another coach was a better player than Frank Vogel, so he could go out and defend the three. Another moronic, asinine, and completely let me throw it up against the wall again and see if it stinks when it, when it see if it sticks when it actually does nothing more than stink from the buffoon that is Stephen A. Smith. The Lakers, as I said to you before, and to anyone who listened, traded away a championship team because they didn't win a championship. 
We like Russ. There was a time when we loved Russ. We loved Russ's effort. We loved Russ's attitude. We loved Russ's push it, push it, push it, hard charging approach. We loved Russ's take no prisoners. We loved Russ's pull up. We loved Russ's get into the paint. We loved the attack mode. We loved the 85% free throw rate. Those days are gone. That was 27, 28 year old Russ. Russ can't play like that anymore. And he can't guard anybody. And for the umpteenth time in this league, the way it is now structured, you must be able to, at least to some degree, shoot the three. And even more importantly, you must be able to defend the three. The Lakers, as structured, can do neither. And they traded away and let go the three most important pieces in doing that. As I said before, okay, Montrez Harrell didn't work out. If he didn't trade him, he was going to opt out, so let him opt out. Schroeder made the trade with Danny Green involved, and you offered him a bunch of money, didn't take it? Okay. That didn't require you to trade for Russ. Why are you trading Caldwell Pope, one of your best defenders, a clutch three-point shooter in his athletic prime, who can defend point guards, who can defend twos, who can defend threes and extend the defense? Why are you trading Kyle Kuzma, who can do the same out of the forward spot? And why are you letting Caruso go? Your three best all-around defenders in the perimeter who can also rebound at both ends of the floor, knock down threes. They're not pure shooters, but they can knock them down when it matters most. Any one of them, especially Pope and Kuzma, at various times were that third guy, which we always talked about. Who's going to be the third guy when the Lakers won a championship? Was any one of a bunch of different guys? It didn't have to be one particular guy. It could be any guy. You let all those guys go, and you did it to get Russ, which means you gave up depth, you gave up youth, you gave up athleticism, you gave up defensive versatility, and you painted yourself into a corner financially. Whereas if you had stood pat and simply brought in Carmelo and brought in Malik Monk and resigned Caruso, you would have had offensive firepower off the bench for next to nothing, and you would have been a position cap-wise with contracts where if things didn't work out the way you had hoped, you would have had flexibility. You would have had maneuverability. You would have had the ability to do things at the deadline. Once you had Russ, you couldn't do anything at the deadline because you had Russ. And no one was going to take Russ. And you weren't trading LeBron and you weren't trading AD. So you couldn't do anything at the deadline. And you can't do anything now unless you move Russ. Or Anthony Davis. And I don't want them moving Anthony Davis. So you've got to find a way to move Russ. Or you are going to be stuck in the same exact scenario next year. You must get younger. You must get young legs on the perimeter to defend the three and rebound and be able to run on the offensive side. You cannot continue to labor defensively where you're giving up 120, 130, 140 points. Every backcourt looks like an all-star backcourt against the Lakers because they do not have the depth or versatility or the length to defend the three on all areas of the court because there isn't one particular spot anymore. It's threes from everywhere and everybody shoots them. 
and everybody knocks him down against the Lakers because they're old, they are slow, and they don't have enough size in their young players to defend the three and enough experience in those young players. Reeves is getting better. He's got a chance to be a pretty good player. I love Monk and I love his athleticism and an offensive ability. He'll get better defensively. Horton Tucker has been a complete bust. They kept Horton Tucker instead of Caruso and Horton Tucker was a huge disappointment this year. But had you simply stood pat, you could have kept Horton Tucker and Caruso if you didn't have Russ. If you didn't make the deal for Russ, and that was the killer. It's not one of the worst trades in Laker history. It's the worst trade in Laker history, not just because of the fact that Russ didn't fit. It's because it was a trade that boxed you into a corner with your roster and boxed you into a corner financially such that you could do absolutely nothing to remedy it. You are hamstrung. As long as this player is on your team with that contract, you are handcuffed to him and unable to do anything to cure this because you've got a player who makes a fortune, who doesn't fit, and you need younger, more athletic, versatile defenders. And there's no way of getting them because you have no draft capital. You have nothing to trade for draft capital unless you can find someone to take Russ. And as I said, I dig Russ. Always loved Russ, but not for us. If Russ is making $20 different story. But when Russ is making $47 million or whatever the number is, and it precludes you from doing anything else, you're hamstrung. And whosever idea it was, whether it was LeBron and company, whether it was the general manager, Rob Palenka, whether it was Kurt Linda Rambis, whoever it was, and I'm not pointing fingers, I don't know what it was, I don't care what it was. I mean, I do care. But the bottom line is it was the worst trade in the history of the Los Angeles Lakers. Because if you don't make that deal and you stay, as I said, your structure is sound, your defense is sound, and you have the ability to bring in other pieces that help you during the regular season. You could have traded for Miles had he stayed healthy. You know, once that, once you change that, the entire season changes. You don't know if Davis gets hurt. You don't know if LeBron gets hurt. It's a totally different roster. You're playing a different style of ball. You know, you're going to be in the playoffs with that roster regardless. And it, it just, I could never figure it out. I could never figure out what the thought process was to make this deal. And it bit him in the ass and swallowed him up. And as a result, uh, the Laker postmortem is an ugly death. It was the worst season in memory because not just of the record, but of the caliber of players that were on the team. You know, when you had Kobe and nobody, that was a different story. When you had Kobe in and out of the lineup with injuries and aging players and, you know, no one, no second star, that's a different story. This is LeBron. This is AD. This is Russ. This is us. And this is a mess. And I frankly have no idea how they're going to get out of it for next year 
when Russ is gone, then you can begin to get out of it. Don't know if LeBron will still be around. Still got AD under contract. If he can stay healthy, you've got a building block. But unless they can rid themselves of Russ and his contract, you've got the same exact scenario next year as I see it. There was that stretch from 2015 to 2017 where they're going 21 and 61, 17 and 35, a couple seasons there, as you mentioned, where it was just let's at least watch Kobe play basketball if he's healthy. And other than that, sweet Lord, turn the TV off. But this wasn't a sweet Lord, turn the TV off type of team. This was the team coming into the season where you thought, we've got a good chance here. They've got the guy, hopefully, that can contribute in the games where LeBron and AD need rest. If one of them gets dinged up, Anthony Davis specifically, they have that second guy that could carry the slack for a couple games. All the optimism coming into the season, and then as it wore on, you just saw the writing on the wall like, this is not going to work, and now what? And you hand the keys over to LeBron when he comes over to your franchise. Lakers aren't the first team to do that. Do what you will. Bring in who you want. Just win a damn championship. Well, he did his end of the bargain in the asterisk season, as we talk about. But that banner's still up there in the Staples Center. Now what are you going to do next? And the decisions that were made for this season... As you said, whomever was the person that actually put pen to paper and made things happen should be ashamed of themselves. Well, look, you, you know the trade doesn't happen without celebrity. If it's his idea, that's one thing. But regardless, you know, Rob Plunk is not making this trade without LeBron and Anthony Davis right. signing off on it. So. And that's what we've heard. We've heard that's what they wanted. And what baffles your mind is we hear about LeBron's memory and it being photographic. He remembers plays from... 10 years ago in specific games and knows all the tendencies of all these guys. And then he pretends he's watching like young stars. He was checking them out in eighth grade, knew they would be successful. He's always saying stuff like that about some of the younger guys. Oh yeah. I saw them coming up. Of course he did. How did you not see this man? And even if you didn't see it, you didn't ask anybody else that you're playing with. We saw them playing in the off season, him and Russ getting work in Instagram posts. Oh, this would be great. It'd be great to play with this guy. You didn't talk to anybody else around the league. Like, yo, this dude still has it or no. If you've got such a great memory, how do you not remember playing them in the postseason when he was with the Rockets in the bubble and leaving him wide open? He was a dog. How do you not, re- how, how do you not remember staring at him from a distance as your entire squad refused to defend him from three and let him shoot all he wanted, and he couldn't put the ball in the ocean. How do you forget the guys you played with in the bubble to win that championship? Did you think they just forgot how to play? They're only going to get better. You love And you Caruso. threw them to the side like trash. Caldwell Pope, Caldwell Pope was one of your guys. He's in the camp. All right, You loved Caruso. And I, I, I know... Kuzma supposedly didn't like playing with LeBron. But I know what? You figure that out. You figure that out. You're LeBron. You figure it out. Say, look, we want to ring together. We're going to make, we're going to win more. Let's work it out. Yeah. Shovel the dirt on them. Uh, this is a mess. And I, quite frankly, have no concept short of you know moving Russ, how they're going to get out of it. The fact that they gave it away uh, for a player who hamstrung them and just never fit to me is I don't want to say it's unforgivable, but it's unthinkable. There's just, there's just no explanation for it. Couldn't figure it out. Then been trying to figure it out. Still can't figure it out. 
We talked about Danny Manning and the miracles. It's going to be the Lakers needing a miracle for the next couple of years to dig themselves out of this grave. And we talk about getting younger. You also conversely have a 37 year old LeBron James doing things we've never seen a 37 year old do in what would be an MVP caliber season. If his team didn't fucking stink, he can't guard anybody anymore. Oh, he's done with defense. Uh, Don't worry about that. He's just, he's just looking to score points. And you know, yeah, he was terrific for 37, but it had no impact on winning. Can't defend. No matter how many he scores, even if it's efficient, if you're not stopping anyone and they're scoring at a higher percentage than you are, they win. And the Lakers could not stop anyone, especially in fourth quarters. I think they set the record this season for most. That's the worst loss of the seasons. I think we said that more this year than any other season I can remember. Because just when they'd get a little momentum, now they're not going to win back-to-back games. I couldn't tell you the last time they did that, just stringing together two wins. I remember, I forget who it was at the desk. might have been Charles Barkley before the season started. And he said, the Lakers won't win six consecutive games or more all season. I think three in a row was the most they won. Three in a row was the number. It wasn't even close. It's an embarrassing season for the franchise of record in the NBA. I think it's going to be a terrific NBA postseason. We will talk about more of that next week as we wind down the season. And we will put in our MVP votes next week as well once the season is terminated. And we have our final playoff seedings as we start the play-in tournament. But uh, the East is a war. The West looks like it's Phoenix's to lose. That's what it's looking like. Heat, Bucks, Celtics, 76ers, Raptors, and Bulls. That obviously the East. The West is Suns, Grizzlies, Warriors, Mavericks, Jazz, and Nuggets. The playing contenders, Cavs, Nets, Hawks, Hornets, T-Wolves, Clippers, Pelicans, and Spurs. Folks, it's amazing the way the new report just rattled every one of the contenders and pretenders. They're all in the mix within literally 10 to 15 seconds. I have a LeBron James photographic-esque memory myself as well. So that's what I contribute to the show. Al, it's always a pleasure. We'll do it again next week. Folks, for my partner, the great John Tiny Lund, he's the new report. I'm Al Renato, AKL from White Plains. I'm the old report. Until next week, have a great sports weekend, everybody. We'll be back 8 p.m. Eastern time here on Sports Radio America. You can listen at sportsradioamerica.com and interact with the show there as well or find us on the TuneIn app by searching for Sports Radio America. You can also follow John Lund under the same handle on Twitter at London Bridge. Thanks again for listening.